Hello, everybody. How are you all? What a lovely way to spend a Sunday afternoon. Thank you all for being here. Uh, welcome to Life in Pictures with Richard E. Grant, a career that's provided so many emotions for us as film fans. And for him, um, an incredible depth and variety of performances as an actor. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Richard E. Grant. hearing all those characters and snippets of, of your life in this world? It's brutal. <laughs> <laughs> you just feel ancient. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's just weird. Yes, yeah, your whole, yeah, it's, it's uh, at, unnatural. <laughs> We've got an, an amazing um, selection of some of your work to, to highlight and talk about um, this afternoon. But I wanted to know, for me personally, what made you want to become an actor? God, you know, I, I have no idea where, how, how to really answer that because when I look back at my childhood, I have uh, photographs of um, making shoebox theatres uh, when I was seven with uh, cut-out scenery and uh, characters from magazines stuck on lollipop sticks going through the sides with a bedside lamp. And then glove puppets which I made and then string puppets and then I uh, used to get Pelham uh, string puppets for my Christmas and birthday presents every year. So, and had a marionette theatre in my parents' garage, was in every school play that I could probably try and get into, involved in the amateur theatre club in Swaziland where I grew up. So th the line of it, to me, if I look back, is very clear, but where that comes from, because I have no theatrical antecedents in my family at all, I, I, I don't know. I, I, at some level, I think it chooses you. Mm -hmm. And by the same token, even when I've read the script and you, I know what the, think what the character is, when you actually come to do the takes or you, do this scene in theatre, when you actually start doing it, I have no idea what it is that happens. You just, I think, react to what you react off. Yeah. Um, so in trying to understand what it is or delineate, you know, I've seen some actors be very technical and go, well, you know, I did, on this thing I did this. And <laughs> see these Michael Caine workshops where he says, you know, you look in one eye and you don't blink and all that stuff. <laughs> I couldn't, you know, I wouldn't be able to pull any of that stuff off. <laughs> Just react to what's coming at you, really. Yeah. Um, what would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned in your career? <clears throat> I think accepting that no is invisibly tattooed on most people's heads when you're trying to get a job. Um, ah, there must be actors here. I think That's a very loud laughter, wasn't it's it? It's just, you, you just have to, once you get inured to that, thinking, well, fuck it, they, they've said no, I'm going to keep trying. Yes. Um, until somebody says yes. I also had one teacher called Bunny Barnes, who was Scottish, taught me the piano, and bad French and good English, um, who I then stayed friends with during my adult life, and she died 10 years ago at the age of 80, 89. And we corresponded by letter, because she was hopeless at email. Um, and we stayed friends for uh, 40, 40 or 50 years. Mm. And 
having one person that believes in you right from the beginning, who happened to be a teacher as well, that has been invaluable to me. And I, I, feel, I feel so indebted to her for having faith because my father, who was the head of education in Swaziland during its um, British protectorate years, was so worried because he said to me, I think that to become an actor, you're going to spend your life in tights, makeup, and avoiding a buggery. Now, <laughs> uh, it's interesting because when I quoted that exact line in America last month, total silence. <laughs> and I love Americans, but... Welcome home. Yeah. <laughs> So thank you. <laughs> anyway, I've, I've been wearing the tights and the makeup, and I've, I've managed so far to avoid the, the last bit. Um, you formed friendships and, and lifelong friendships pretty early on as well with your, with your first job with, with Neil and I. Yes. Um, in, in particular with Bruce Robinson. Yeah. Um, when, you, when, when that film is, is mentioned to you, what, what's the first thing that you think about with, with Neil and I? Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> Because, thank God, the fucker turned it down. <laughs> it was meant to be. Because otherwise, I know I would not be sitting here talking to you in your fabulous green velvet pantsuit today. Wearing your, your perfume. Yeah. No, it, uh, I know, because they, they, uh, I know that the casting process... Dan, Daniel had opened in Room of the View and Beautiful Laundrette on the same day, playing in a feet Edwardian and a gay South London punk in the other. And both movies opened on the same day in America, which was unbelievably fortuitous for him. And the critics couldn't believe that it was the same actor. And so he was offered absolutely everything, including Withnail, um, and chose to do the unbearable lightness of being instead, which would have been my state of mind if I hadn't got that part. Um, <laughs> And so they had you know, many, many people from Bill Knight to Kenneth Branagh up down at Sideways, Edward Dudapole, had all gone up to meet Bruce Robinson for this part. And he said, Bruce Robinson said, that none of them had said his dialogue that had made him laugh or the sound that he'd had in his head. Mm -hmm. So the late, great Mary Selway, um, casting director, had seen me in an improvised thing called Honest, Decent and True that Les Blair directed with Aid Edmondson and <coughs> Gary Oldman. And from that, because I played a very odd character on that, and it was all improvised, she said, bring this guy in. And he said, no, he looks like a fat Dirk Bogart. I'm not seeing this fucker. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. However, in his defense, during my nine months of unemployment in 1985, I had read in some magazine, you know, standing in W.H. Smith endlessly, looking through those things, hoping that I wouldn't even be thrown out, um, had said, if you're six foot two, you should weigh 12 stone. And I thought, well, I weigh 11 stone. This, you know, this, is, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to Schwarzenegger myself into a career. <laughs> so I took weight gain powder and I went to Dres Reinecke in uh, Notting Hill Gate and Linda LaPlante's ex-husband, Richard LaPlante, was a sort of muscle Mary. And um, apparently that's what you can call them. Uh, and he sort of pumped me up. And after nine months, I did get up to 12 stone. But to say that I look like a fat Dirk Bogart is a bit rich. Anyway, I then went into th this audition and uh, 
I'd come out of Notting Hill Tube Station wearing a 1940s raincoat that I got from Oxfam and had a leather-bound copy of Robinson Crusoe that I was reading at that time on the tube journeys. So a monsoon um, opened up from the skies just as I got out of the tube station. And I had to walk up to Peel Cottage, which was, I know, 10 blocks away, and was drenched. So I looked like a drowned rat by the time I came in. And I said, I'm so sorry, Mary. And she said, no, no, this is perfect for the part. <laughs> Um, and I did see somebody very famous scooting out the door, and I thought, fuck, they've got the part already. So I then met Bruce Robinson and was holding the script, and he said, uh, would you, would you, what did you think of it? And I said, well, I think it's, you know, ball-achingly funny and brilliant, and blah, blah, which is obviously the right thing to say. And he said, would you read the first scene? So I did, which was set in the kitchen, and uh, I had one line, fork it, and I missiled, the script went this way, and I had my fingers like this, and I went, fork it, <laughs> to him, and it made him laugh. And of course, I didn't know that these two words would be the entire reason why I got cast, because he thought, well, if he says two words correctly, maybe we can, you know, get the rest out of him over weeks of work. So this mad fucker made me you know, audition for another two weeks with other actors, and I was completely convinced that... Uh, I was being used as sort of guinea pig to read in while the person who was playing the part was sitting in, you know, Marbella on a mobile phone. Um, and so then, eventually, after two weeks of stuff, I, I did get cast. And the irony of that is that having played an out-of-work actor in that film, every job, almost without exception, that I've had in the last 32 years has been as a result of playing that part. So I'm indebted to that <laughs> bastard for casting me. <laughs> oh, and the other thing is he said, as soon as I was cast, he said, you're going to have to lose all that weight. <laughs> <laughs> so I called Gary up, and uh, he just played Sid, you know, Sid Vicious. And I said, how have you lost all the weight, Gary? And he told me that he went on... Uh, tuna fish, weight loss powder from Boots, and uh, lemon juice. So I went oh on that, God. and having spent a year gaining 12, uh, 14 pounds, I then lost it in a week um, and you know, played the part. So that's a very long answer to your short question. But a bloody great one. Okay. <laughs> how much of Withnail was on the page, and how much did you create him through working with Paul and also just talking about him? And uh, there wasn't a comma or a full stop that wasn't scripted, or a word. Every single thing was... Uh, Bruce Robinson was an absolute stickler for that. And when I told him that I loved Robert Altman's work, he was so disparaging because he said, oh, all that improvisation, shit. Um, excuse my language. Um, he said that having bust his balls for years trying to get dialogue to sound as good as his dialogue is, he doesn't want some actor coming along and going, oh, I'm just going to improvise, or I'm going to change it on the day. So he was as script-specific, micromanaged of any writer that I've ever come across. But when the words are as good as that, um, it's a real pleasure to, to say them. And he did say to me after the first week of shooting that he wanted to do another film about a man with a talking boil called How to Get Ahead in Advertising. After we'd done this one, I thought, yeah, 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 it'd never happen. Anyway, it did. <laughs> but he said, uh, the way that you do my dialogue is the way that I hear it in my head. So I'm just yeah. sorry that uh, that's only happened twice. Um, and I never got to do another one with him. 
That said, though, that scene in particular, I believe, he didn't want the laugh. Is that right? He was furious. He was absolutely furious because he, he quite rightly said that, that in order to play comedy, he said this right on the first day of rehearsal, um, you have got to play it absolutely dead straight because if you think it's funny or you telegraph to the audience that you're sort of winking at them, it'll be dead in the water. And then he would quote Peter Sellers and say, that's why Peter Sellers wasn't funny. And I go, Peter Sellers was really funny. <laughs> and he said, no, you can't. And if anybody laughed on the set at anything, he would go, cut, and we'd, we'd shoot, shoot again. Because he said, you have to play the thing absolutely as seriously and in the moment as possible, because these characters are in a state of sh such desperation and destitution that you can't play it w with any sense that it's funny. Um, having said that, there was a scene in a bar called the Mother Black Cap where I'd come back, uh, Paul McGann had gone to the loo and thought that somebody, you know, he'd read some graffiti about fucking asses and thought this guy in the bar was going to do this to him. Um, so he comes back and said, we've got to get out of here. And I think I said, I had a line said, what fucker said that? And as I turned, I'd taken a bite out of a pork pie and a piece of pie got stuck in my mouth, and it made Bruce laugh, and he kept that take in. <laughs> but on this scene that you've asked about, um, there were two dogs, pug dogs, <laughs> in the lady extras that were sitting behind me um, that were in EastEnders. The dogs were in EastEnders. <laughs> and... Me Too movement, I'll say no more. <laughs> the dogs, not the lady extras. Um, they were, they, uh, you know, they, because their breathing is so inbred and whatever, so <laughs> they have that sort of funny noise that they make, and I love pugs, by the way. Um, I didn't hear that during the rehearsals, but as soon as we went, you know, call for silence during the take, all I could hear behind me was... <laughs> And I thought it was the two ladies laughing. <laughs> so every time, and Bruce said, don't swear in front of them. And he cast the woman, Mrs. Blenna Hassett, who ran the cafes. It looked like Mrs. Thatcher because he hated her so much. And um, so he said, don't do the swearing in the rehearsals. So I didn't do that. But every time we came to this take, and that I heard the pugs get <laughs> doing the laughing. And then I had to say, we're going to liven all you stiffs up a bit. I never managed them. There were 14 takes, and he was absolutely furious. So anyway, it's in there. <laughs> so. <laughs> Sorry, Bruce. Do you, do you take away something from every experience with a director? Do you feel like you're constantly learning with every project? Yeah, I d yes, de definitely, because every director is so different to the one that's been before, mm. and the expectations that they have are so different. And very often, in my experience, they, they expect you just to do it. So they don't really very often give you an enormous amount of direction. So that is something that you've got to cope with as well, thinking, well, you've got to rely on your instinct or your imagination or the combination of those two things um, to do it and just hope that they don't fire you or cut you out of the thing. Um, but I don't know, that, has that answered your question? Well, let's take Jane Campion as an example. Oh, yeah. And what that experience was like and what you learned from working with her on Portrait of a Lady. That was 1995 and she was, she was so 
I had so admired the piano. And when I went in to meet her, she immediately asked me very personal questions. And I know that she had lost, uh, she'd had a child, her first child died. Um, so at the very moment that she won the Cannes Film Festival and then the Oscar and everything, she'd had this great personal tragedy. And uh, our first child um, died half an hour after she was born in the second week of rehearsals of Withnail and I. So at the very moment of great sort of professional breakthrough and opportunity, which that film, you know, unquestionably was, did, and have, um, well, I had this terrible personal tragedy at the same time. So I talked about that, we talked about that, and so we bonded about something that had nothing to do with the film at all, a Portrait of a Lady, and I don't know whether that got me the part, or I, I have no idea, but it, it felt as though we'd gone into a sort of other arena that you'd, I've certainly never experienced that with a male director before. Um, and the other thing that, that Jane Campion has is she's the best actor as a director I've ever come mm -hmm. across. She could improvise and walk into scenes, and if she didn't think it was going right, she'd just come in and, and play, not Jane Campion, but she just, she'd improvise in, in, in the scene to try and get something to liven it up or to, to find something in, in the scene. And that was very unusual to have a director do that because I've never had that before, where somebody's left the, you know, the position of being at the monitor or the camera and just come into a scene and started improvising stuff. So that's a great gift that she has. And she, she's also a stickler for wanting everything to be as unobvious as possible. Mm -hmm. So she said to me right at the beginning, you're gonna have a beard. I don't want to see a vestige of Withnail in you. Um, so she was very prescriptive in that way, but because I loved and admired her so much, you know, I just willingly went with whatever she did. And the other great experience I had on that in terms of getting advice from people, I worked with uh, Sir John Gilgood, who was in his mid-90s at that point, and I said, what is your advice for old age? And he looked at me, and I was you know, 37 and you know, full of shit, and he said, he said, cultivate younger friends. I said, you know, stupidly, I said, why? He said, because when I go through my phone book now, everybody I want to call is dead. So, and the other thing he did was, was hilarious because I, we were filming in Wiltshire in a sort of lovely country hotel and uh, Nicole Kidman was on a very, very strict diet and fitness regime and so she would go to bed sort of on the clock of nine o'clock every night and John Gilgood was with a nurse because he was in ill health sitting on a separate table and we were all told don't disturb Sir John Gilgood and it was right in the middle of the OJ Simpson trial and he heard us talking about it because I was obsessed with it and he said, oh, my dear, may I, you know, come and join you at your table? <laughs> so he came over and we were all sort of like this at Sir John. And he would talk about things from 1937 or 1924 as though they'd happened yesterday and only about the theater. When I asked him about Hitler, he said, oh, my dear, I have no interest at all. So <laughs> you know, every time I hear Brexit, I think Sir John would just go, oh, my dear. <laughs> sort of gets me through the day of madness. 
And then we, we, I said, are you following the, the um, O.J. Simpson gate? He said, oh, yes, my dear. He said, Cato Caitlin, very big cock. And uh, <laughs> so he would be there talking about Cato Caitlin and all this stuff. He was a surfer that lived next door to O.J. Simpson, by the way, who was blonde and also like that. He's very taken with Cato Caitlin. Um, so he would sit with, you know, two bottles of wine and go through the menu and just, he'd gossip and talk till one in the morning. So all this stuff of you had to leave Sir John alone, that went out the door <laughs> so, while Nicole was having a beauty sleep. So I loved him for that. Do you not like watching yourself? No, it's gruesome. <laughs> yeah, and my wife who's here will attest to this, that the first time I saw a rough or a semi-finished version of Withnail in a uh, screening room in Soho, uh, I gouged blood out of her wrist, holding it so tight because... I was so horrified by what I saw and heard and said to Bruce Robinson in a terrible state afterwards, um, please take my money back. I'm so sorry I've ruined your film. And so it's, it's, I think it's that I've never really got used to it. Uh, I think it, because it's unnatural to see yourself. Um, and I've, I've always thought of the analogy of it's, unless you're a voyeur, it's like um, sex. You don't want to see yourself having sex, but you like doing it, but you don't want to see the record of it. <laughs> Um, obviously this audience does um, so it's you know, because all you, all you see and hear is what is wrong you don't see it's very hard to dissociate and, and find out what, what is right I think so it took me a long time to ever watch Withnail again, because I had to at a university screening last, it was 30th anniversary last year, and I could see it because obviously I was so much double the age that I was then. Um, I could watch it w and try and enjoy it as the audience who were watching it were, but I could still see all the things that were wrong, and so it's, it's excruciating. Never got easier. No, and I'm just grateful that other people haven't felt the same. Some critics have. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you mentioned him earlier, um, Robert Altman, and the completely oh. different way of working than, than, than Bruce and, you know, encouraging that ad lib and, and Gosford Park. What, what are your memories of that experience? Uh, I'd worked with him on the player first, mm -hmm. and then, and that was an extraordinary experience because I was supposed to do a, a biographic, um, what do you call them, biopicture. Yeah. Of, the, of Toscanini with him in 1989, and because I met him in Paris while I was doing Henry in June, and he always called me E. Grant. I said, we're gonna do this movie, and it, the whole thing collapsed, it was before the play and his resurgence, or you know, renaissance, and because that movie went down four weeks before we started shooting, I thought the chances are I would never ever work for Robert Altman because he was already old at that point as far as I could see. <laughs> And I had seen Nashville as a student 27 times in a bug house because, you know, if you're trying to appreciate pre-DVD or video or online streaming, to see a movie 27 times took, you know, you had that, you, that took determination. Commitment. Um, <laughs> so I'd seen that and I've just obsessed with the way he worked and I knew that he liked actors that were shaped like pipe cleaners with long faces. Keith Carradine, you know, all of those olive oil type characters. So I thought, well, if anybody's gonna cast me in a movie, Robert Altman will be the person to do it. So when that fell through, I was at the absolutely horrendous, disastrous 
premiere screening of Hudson Hawk in LA with a room full of the most famous people on the planet who disappeared faster than gun smoke before the credits had even rolled at the end. And just as it was about to start, tap on my shoulder, sorry, tap on my shoulder, and it was Robert Altman sitting with Tim Robbins. And he said, what are you doing here, E. Grant? And I said, I'm in what you're about to see, and you will never employ me, or you know, we'll never be friends because it's an absolute turkey. Why, why are you here? He said, I'm doing research for a film about Hollywood called The Player that I'm about to do. Will you come and be in it in a month's time? And I said, if I'm not locked up or you know, made a prohibited immigrant in America, yes, because of what you're about to see. And Hudson Hawk was an absolute dog. So um, he really saved me. And my point is that the experience of working with him on that, where you have a script and then the freedom to improvise around that, mm. um, and then subsequently on pret porto which was called Ready to Wear in America, um, he works in a way that really takes you back to the democratic nature of working in, <coughs> this, in, in the theater, in that mm. everybody's basically paid the same. Uh, he, doesn't, he didn't spend money on Winnebago's and fancy makeup tents and any of that kind of stuff. So you'd be standing behind Lauren Bacall or Sophia Loren on the Pret-a-Porter film, waiting to have your makeup done. And everybody, there were two tiers of salary. Um, it's the only time I've ever been paid the same as Julia Roberts. Um, so, so working on, on Gossard Park was, again, the same experience that he had. He'd have two, Andrew Dunn was the DOP. He had two cameras going simultaneously. So you never knew, because it was such an ensemble and Julian Fellows had written such a smart script, mm. uh, you never knew whether you were in close-up, in wide shot, or in the frame at all, which is very liberating as an actor because it means that you, you have to be completely in your character and in the moment. And there's n there was no possibility, as happens with some actors, where they kind of go, oh, well, it's not my close-up. I'll just you know, phone it in. I'll read the lines or you know, not even be there, as in the case of Bruce Willis, who wasn't for the off-lines. He'd just you know, be in his hotel room. And you'd have a Hungarian script that going, I love that. Um, <laughs> I haven't worked with him again. <laughs> uh, so, oh shit, this is being recorded. Okay. <laughs> um, so, the point is that Altman said, when I asked him about this, he said, if you take a frame of a picture, which you know, a movie essentially is, he said, I'm as interested in what is going on in the left-hand corner and the bottom right as what's going on in the middle. And that sometimes worked brilliantly for him, and at other times it was to his detriment because the things were so freewheeling. And there is an innate desire in us, I think, as human beings, is to follow a story, even if it's very, very fractious or uh, fragmented. A story is a thing that... that you know, pulls you through the, through the thing. Um, and he had, as a director, and as a human being, same thing, I suppose, he had the most acute hearing of any person that I've ever come across. And he was old when I worked with him. He could hear what that projectionist is whispering right now. And he would be as interested in that as what somebody over there might be saying. Uh, so in MASH, he famously 
invented this system where 16 to 18 actors were mic'd up at the same time. So you have this overlapping dialogue, which he said is what happens in real life, rather than you wait and, mm -hmm. you know, because even now on, on films, uh, they don't, the, most directors or sound department are horrified if dialogue overlaps. So I suppose it's, you know, it helps with the editing process that they can cut everybody in or out. But he was, he was amazing for that. So, and he, the other thing he did, he always employed musicians so that on a Sunday night, wherever we were shooting, we could have entertainment for free. Um, wow. He also had a joint at the end of every day. And as I'm allergic to alcohol and love marijuana, it was perfect. <laughs> um, and he also did this other thing, which you think, you know, sounds so obvious, but is unique, was unique to him. He would invite all the actors to see the rushes or the dailies or whatever you call them every night. So it meant that every single thing that somebody was in got shown on a screen, so it had an audience once, even if it got cut, you would then, you, you saw the work, and it meant that everybody saw what kind of movie you were making, mm -hmm. and it got everybody on the same page, as it were. And the other great thing that I realized when I wrote and directed my own film was that by doing that, and I slavishly copied that, you have an audience reaction. So if you have five takes that come up, the one that works with an audience, you know immediately. So if it gets a laugh or the quality of the silence is acute, you, the audience guides you, even if they're partisan actors and crew who've worked on it, so that when you come to the edit and you're sitting in total silence with one other person in a little room and you know, a monitor, mm. that information really helps inform how you edit your picture. And I thought that was such a smart thing to do. And he loved actors. So I'm very sorry that he died when he did, but you know, he was in his mid-80s, had a new heart, because he had heart transplant, and I got to be in three of his movies. So it was, and the fact that Pret-a-Porter was such a dog, disaster, you know, the other two were hits. It, the, the actual shooting process was exactly the same. Mm. So I, I absolutely, I loved him. Um, as, a, as an ensemble, when there's this incredible collection of, of people, do you, with that, was there much rehearsal involved or with, with, with this film or, because there's so many of you? There was, there was no rehearsal. Um, we kind of rehearsed on camera, as it were. Yeah. And because trying to corral that huge number of actors at the same time was such a logistic nightmare mm. that only on the shooting days did you have everybody there. And we started shooting, Alan Bates and I, oh, and I loved him, um, worked upstairs and downstairs, whereas most of the actors did all the upstairs stuff in the first six weeks of the shoot, and the second six weeks were, apart from the bit of a location for the, um, the shoot uh, that happens, were at uh, studios in, uh, kitchen scenes that were, created by Robert Altman's son, who's a production designer at Shepperton Studios. Mm. But what was so fascinating is that uh, I had an occasion where, and I won't say which the actor is, but somebody said to me, who was playing one of the posh people, you can't sit there. And I had to say, sorry, I'm an actor, you fucker. <laughs> um, had, you know, got so completely into the world of, wow. you know, you are downstairs. Jesus. You have no right. So, 
I thought, ah, oh, he's That's a method actor. <laughs> and I think he just did it unconsciously because it was like, you can't sit there because, you know, yeah. you're a footman. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway. get out, George. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next couple of films that we're going to specifically show clips from and talk about have, have incredible performances from leading ladies, um, the Iron Lady and Jackie. Oh, and, yeah. Um, we'll start with Iron Lady. And this is a, you know, a, a wonderful film that was written by, directed by a female and Marilyn, this, this kind of leading role, and you playing Michael Heseltine. When you're playing someone who is real, who existed... Um, he does still exist. still exist. Um, and who's... <laughs> can we double-check? No, I'm joking. <laughs> who, who, you know, is a very larger-than-life character who mm -hmm. the world has an opinion of, really. Where do you start when you're approaching how you play him and how you find your interpretation of him? YouTube was absolutely amazing because I could see him on Question Time arguing with various people and he had a V, well he has a V, so I imitated that. And you know, sadly for me, my part was so small. Everybody, once, once I told people that I was playing Michael Hesterton, they said, oh, have you got the mace swinging scene in the movie? And I said, no, I don't. It was apparently he picked it up in the midst of parliament and you know, did a bit of Tarzan stuff as he was nicknamed. Um, but what was so useful is that he had written, he's very dyslexic, but he'd obviously dictated his life, his autobiography. So there was a great tome that thick by him. And then there was Margaret Thatcher's autobiography. I don't know whether she wrote it. So I had the great opportunity of reading his version of the exact same events that she then had. Um, and his vaulting ambition was absolutely apparent in both versions, his version and her version of this story. And Philip, the director, was very, very determined. I don't know whether she's a sadist. I seem to bring this out in some directors. But she insisted that I dye my fucking wig. My, you know, I, had, I had to dye my hair. And everybody else had wigs. And I said, but everybody else has got wigs. She said, no, you've got to dye your hair. So it took about six processes. It went orange and blue and everything under the sun. <laughs> and it still looked awful. Um, and apparently, I'm only saying this because when Michael Heseltine was interviewed about whether he was going to see the movie or not, he said, most certainly not, as he was quoted. And he said, and they employed somebody that didn't even have the right hair. So... <laughs> You know, he was born and has more hair now than I have ever had in my life. So, um, anyway, that was, that was my experience of Michael Heseltine. But working with Meryl Streep, that is like, and I know everybody is in this room has said it before, but if, if you feel like you've worked with somebody who is really great and there were absolutely amazing actors in Gossard Park that you've just seen, but when you work with Meryl Streep, it is literally the Rolls Royce of our profession. And she is on, you know, that's why she has more Oscar nominations and wins than anybody breathing before or since. Uh, and her generosity and willingness to work with everybody and collaborate is bar none. I've never, you know, I literally worshipped at her feet. I heard a lovely thing that you said where before you started filming, you asked someone's advice who'd worked with her. Yeah. And they said that she likes to laugh was the thing that they told you. She laughs a lot. She does, and, and you'll appreciate that um, we were filming Houses of Parliament walking scenes because it was the same architect that did the City Hall in Manchester. I think it's Manchester or Liverpool, I'm not sure, sorry, it might be Liverpool. And so we filmed all that stuff in there. And to see her break into an ABBA medley, dressed as Mrs. Thatcher, <laughs> 
is one of the great joys of my life as an actor because everybody, any, anybody who said, oh, she's very technical, she's very serious, bollocks. She was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and because she is such, you know, she, she, she's such a god of our profession or goddess, um, I couldn't bring myself to call her by her name. So I used to call her Beryl um, and still do. <laughs> Um, dear Beryl, in an email, because it's somehow calling her Meryl. I, I could go, mm, mm, or hello, mm, but, you know, I was very starstruck by her and still am. Then with Jackie and with Natalie and this breathtaking performance that she has, it, going into that and taking on the show of Bill Walton, did you, do you have a conversation with her in terms of working out how she's going to play Jackie so that, you know, you can complement that and particularly for this scene that we're about to see you know is, is are there conversations like that that are had uh no no there were no conversations at all like that wow. uh what really affected the atmosphere of the film more than anything is that the bombing that had happened in paris in that nightclub um was i think two miles away from the studio where we shot so everything was in lockdown paris was in a state of mourning and in a way that i've never experienced in any city anywhere. So that combined with doing a story about a woman suffering such grief and shock at the assassination of her husband um, and the fact that the director worked exactly in the same way that Martin Scorsese did on Age of Innocence in monastic silence. So that really surprised... I, I understood why he did it for Jackie, but I never really understood quite why it had to be like that on Age of Innocence, where if anybody even whispered, he'd be like, what are you You know, you'd get this sort of machine gun of, you know, don't dare speak. Um, and I said to Michael Bauhaus, who was the, the DOP, and I, he just died last year, um, he was on Dracula, and then I went straight on to Age of Innocence. So I'd worked, you know, one... Uh -huh. He, he went one to the other, and I said, was this like this when you did uh, Goodfellas and all these other you know, films with incredible violence in them? And he said, oh, yes, it was always with, with Scorsese. It's very, very quiet, like in the monastery. And uh, I thought, right, okay. So it was very, you had to be very, you had to, felt very respectful doing that. And in the exact same way that this director um, worked on this, it was very, very quiet. And the French were very, as, as a crew, were very respectful of, of him because they'd admired him so much. In a way that crews in England, I don't think, and that's what I love, there's always a sense of humor about it, not taking it that seriously. But the auteur worship in France of a director is such that the director wants this. So whatever they do, it's it's like sort of blindfolded believers. So you get a whole different atmosphere on a set like that. Whereas I think at Shepparton or Pinewood, you know, you'd hear bollocks quite a lot before. <laughs> you know. Nobody would take it that seriously, you know. So but having said that, it was appropriate to the subject matter. Mm. And he also did this thing, not unlike Jane Campion, in that every scene that we did, he would swap the dialogue around. So he'd give me Jackie Kennedy's dialogue and she'd be saying my dialogue. And then we'd move and I'd be sitting in this chair, then I'd be standing over there. And so he said, because he wanted it to be 
a stream of consciousness of what Jackie Kennedy was going through, um, he wanted it to be told from multiple points of view. Mm. So you never really knew what was going to be in the movie or not. So it was, it was I've never worked in that way quite like that before. And I think that he made a really smart film as a result. There's so many films that we could talk about, but we only have a limited amount of time. Okay. And I want to talk about the now. Um, and I want to say a huge congratulations for Can You Ever Forgive Me, which Thank is you. just incredible. Um, and well done on what I think is your first award of many of the awards season. You just won the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Supporting Actor. So congratulations Thank on you. that as well. Thank you. Um, how did this role come to you? Did you, you just got sent the script and it was, it jumped at you? Uh, my brilliant agent, Sue Latimer, uh, sent me a script exactly to, well, yeah, middle of November, two years ago, and said, you have 24 hours to read this and make a decision. And I said, what the fuck is this mission impossible? <laughs> yeah, it's gonna explode on me. And, and she said, no, no. And then I said, who's died or who's dropped out? And she said, you know, put your paranoia aside. Yeah. I have the master key to the penthouse and the cellar suite of paranoia. Um, and she, she, she said, you know, don't concern yourself with that. Um, just read it and, you know, see what you think. And then I saw that it was Nicole Holof Center and Jeff Whitty, and I knew Jeff, I knew from Nicole Holof Center from her films that she'd written and directed, Jeff Whitty from having written Avenue Q, the musical. So I knew there was going to be a smart script mm. to begin with. And then... The director was Mariel Heller, who I knew from, as a director from Diary of a Teenage Girl that I'd so admired. And then it said, oh, Melissa McCarthy's playing Lee Israel. And I thought, oh, that sounds really good. So I read it and said yes immediately. And then my worry was, uh, at what level was Melissa McCarthy going to play Lee Israel? Because, you know, having seen her in St. Vincent, where she was a very serious character actor, mm -hmm. character actors in that, then to some of the most extreme characters that she played in comedies. I wondered whether this was going to be a movie star vehicle for Melissa McCarthy. Um, then I read the, the, read the, you know, the script and Lee Israel's memoir, Can You Ever Forgive Me, um, was so, obviously the voice of, her sense of humor came through, but she was such an impossible antisocial curmudgeon and I thought, well, how is, you know, is Melissa McCarthy really going to leave all vanity at the door and subsume herself into this part? And when I got to New York in January, middle of January last year, I said to Mari, uh, the director, uh, so when, when am I rehearsing with Melissa? And she said, oh, no, you're not. And I said, what do you mean we're not? She said, we start shooting on Monday. Said, oh, no, Melissa's only coming in on, from L.A. on Friday, and she's got costume, hair, makeup, wig, all that fitting all day. And I said, no, you don't understand. I won't be able to stay... I won't sleep for 72 hours if I only meet her on the first day of shooting. It, I, I, will be in, I won't remember a line. So she went and spoke to uh, Melissa about it, and Melissa mercifully had exactly the same impulse. And so they carved out two hours in the day and a meal uh, on that Friday, and we met and talked about, and I immediately saw at what level she was pitching this part, and she'd lowered her voice, and a sort of whole sense of gravity shifted, and I saw that she was very insistent that she have a wig that had gray roots showing and really dowdy clothes, and 
we got on within the first five nanoseconds of meeting her. Um, we just got on at such a profound level, and that really informed how we made the movie. And I think it was shot in 26 days. I worked for 20 of those days. And on the days that I wasn't working, I would go in and we'd have lunch together and have dinner together. So that doesn't, that in my experience hasn't happened, apart from Steve Martin playing Boggle on every day on LA Story, you know, <laughs> in 1990. That, that doesn't really happen on movies because, you know, most actors I know, I'm sure they'll attest if they're in the room, you read the schedule, you so want the job, and the moment you've got the schedule, you think, oh, how many days have I got off? I can go and do this, <laughs> go and do that. But with this film, um, we really had this real connection and have stayed great friends beyond that, which is unusual. You know, I've always thought that you would form great friendships, lasting friendships on, on movies, but the reality is that you don't because you have this very intense experience when you're working together and then when you then meet the person six months or a year later or two years later, you very often, in my experience, realize that what you really had in common was the making of the movie and the people that were driving you nuts. Mm. Um, so having lasting friendships out of that is fewer and far between than I had hoped or expected, but the ones that I do have, I value enormously, and she is one of those people. The relationship in this the film is just is so important to, to the storytelling in yeah. the film between these, these two people, and it could have gone the other way. You could have gone for dinner with her and gone, oh my God, this is gonna be the most <laughs> painful 26 days ever. It's someone making those decisions to put you two together they see something, you know, they, they see, it's like chemistry, I don't know what, it's something science that they kind of, this is going to work. Yeah, but it's still taking a chance. Yeah. Because, you know, I, th I think if it, it, it's the equivalent, not that I'm doing, because I've been, you know, with my wife, married 32 years and together 35, um, that I can imagine from internet dating or a dating <laughs> profile that you have to put down, well, these are all the things that would make you seem suitable for the other person. But that still doesn't affect what happens when you have two human beings that, that meet. You can, you can have the greatest casting on paper that doesn't always work on mm -hmm. movies, and I can give you a long list of those. Um, so the fact that this happened in the way that it did was a real bonus. And the fact that the other thing that I was so struck by was I was trying to find an equivalent in movie terms of what the relationship was in this Can You Ever Forgive Me? And I thought of... Uh, Midnight Cowboy, John Schlesinger's masterpiece from the early 70s, of John, um, John Voight playing Joe Buck and Dustin Hoffman playing Ratso so brilliantly that you've got two people who are complete social misfits in a state of near destitution, living in New York, you know, the richest city in the world practically, and surrounded by millions of people, but so lonely and so isolated, they form this real oddball codependent relationship that is a kind of platonic love story. And I thought that was the template in my mind for what this relationship should be. And the other thing that I was struck by is that they meet in the bar for the first time and you go, as in most friendships, you go through this, or love, you go through the sort of honeymoon phase of it and then the loyalty phase and then the almost inevitable betrayal and then the poignancy of a reconciliation which they have in a scene right at the end of the movie when Jack Hock, who I play, is dying of AIDS, and Lee Israel is having to, having been completely estranged from him, is having to ask his permission to write him into the story of Can You Ever Forgive Me? 
So it just seemed to sort of deal with the A to Z of friendship more than anything else, even though the plot is all about forgery and all of that. I thought the core of what the story is, is that. And amazingly, when we saw it at Telluride, I was sitting with uh, Melissa at four o'clock in the afternoon when it's world premiere and up in the ski resort in Colorado with an audience like this that we had no idea whether it was going to play or not with people or, or what they would pick up on. Mm -hmm. And it was the relationship of these two characters and their friendship, as, as dysfunctional as it was, that made people feel something. So that's been you know, a real bonus. Everyone's felt lonely, and I think that that's what these yeah. characters, people relate to, definitely. Yeah. Was it kind of script and quite rigid? Uh, everything was scripted. I never see that as rigid. Um, if the script is as good as this one is, Fluid. then <laughs> it gives you the freedom to try and do things. Yeah. There were only two words that I improvised, um, which are not in that clip. Uh, when I'm in the bar, and I think I introduced myself and say, Jack Hock, big cock, came out of my mouth. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's, and Mariel Heller kept that in the movie. So. That was the only improvised thing, and it just just came out. Um, <laughs> how much, how much is known about Jack? You know, she, very she, little is known about him. He, I know that he was from Portland in Oregon. Um, he died in 1994, at the age of 47 of AIDS. So massively, I wasn't from Oregon. I'm s almost 62. So, um, and he was blonde and tall. And the other thing that he was distinguished by it in that he had a stubby cigarette holder because he thought that that was going to stop him getting lung cancer. So I asked the prop department if I could have that um, to use because I thought that that sort of almost Peter O'Toole-ish sense of self and affectation said something about his character. And Arjun, the um, fantastic costume designer, gave me all this Spandau Ballet, <coughs> neo-romantic type stuff from the early 80s that was now on a middle-aged, advanced middle-aged man in the early 90s. Um, you know, threadbare and long past its sell-by date. So that, that really helped me enormously. And I also knew that he'd been in jail for two years because he had held a taxi driver up at knife point, um, arguing about a taxi fare. He was also a kleptomaniac. Um, and... Quite the a lot then. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing that Lee Israel conceded in her memoir is that once she had been rumbled by the FBI and could no longer go out and sell these f forged letters. She got Jack Hock to go and do them, and she would expect that he would get maybe four to five hundred dollars a piece, and he'd come back with two grand, skimming some off the top, of course, as well. But um, so I knew from that that he obviously had the street smarts to go out there and charm people or just do something to fleece them. So that is really what I had to go on. So, and the relationship that I had with Melissa. Does um, making films like this as an actor inspire you and make you want to go on and make more films as a director? Because you made Wawa back in 2005, which was a very personal project. Mm -hmm. But is that a, a want of yours to, to, to make more films? Yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, I was, I've been involved in two others in the interim 12 years since Wawa, um, which collapsed four weeks before we started shooting because that final 10% to get the bond or the you know the bank whatever it is fell through so 
um, five years ago, I started making perfume instead, which has been very lucrative. Um, but yes, I would like to. And But, you know, the market for indie films like this, which are completely human without special effects, um, those are the kind of things that I am most passionate about. And to get those financed is incredibly hard now. And I... The, the film that I'd done just before this was Logan, which was this multi-million dollar, you know, endless long shoot. Um, was the final Wolverine thing, and there was a crew of 300 guys with, you know, their arms were thicker than my thighs, which is not that much, but, you know, <laughs> there was so much hardware and cranes and testosterone in the air. So to then go to a predominantly female, produced, co-written, directed, leading actor, um, was such a contrast to that. Mm. And most of the scenes never involved more than two or three people. So it's, you, you really had a conversation. And you know, for an actor, not to have to spend your time in special effects or weird makeup or you know, doing luma cranes or drones or stunts, all of that kind of stuff, that you really get to, to act with somebody. Mm. Um, so that is hugely enjoyable and is almost a throwback to the kind of movies that, that I love, those independent movies that Altman, Scorsese and Coppola made in the early 70s, you know, before the tentpole movies of Jaws and Star Wars took over. Having said which, I'm in Star Wars at the moment, so fuck oh. <laughs> Can you see anything? Oh, it comes out on the 19th of December, <laughs> 2019. And the other thing that was extraordinary about it is that you don't, well, I wasn't get allowed to read the script. So you go into a conference room that has closed circuit television, closed circuit cameras, and the two bodyguards at the door, you leave your phone at the door, you sign your name in, and you go and you read it. And it's like Fort Knox, and then you come out again, you sign that you leave, and on the day that you, days that you work, you get a sealed envelope with your dialogue in there, and you have to sign that out and sign it back in at the end of the day. And in very large letters it says, if you do not return these, you will not get sides anymore. And it's serious. And there are, there are um, visible security people and plainclothes ones on the sets. Wow. And going from the trailers to the studio, which is you know from here to that door, you have to wear a cloak and a hood because there are drones from the Daily Shame going over. Um, trying to get pictures of people. So it is a lockdown on a scale that I've never experienced before. But having said that, you know, when you walk into the studio and it's not all green screen, you see the actual world that I'd seen since I was 20 years old in 1977 is a complete astonishment. And J.J. Abrams, who's directing it and is an extraordinary person with energy off the scale, um, I said to him on the first day when he cast me, I said, please just pinch me so that I know this is actually happening to me. So I'm from Swaziland. Um, and so every day I go to work, he you know, pinches me on the shoulder so that I know that I'm actually in Star Wars, the I final one. That. I love it. And um, right, it's time for some questions from you, our audience. We have Thank you for all your questions. Thank you. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Are you joking? Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We have some microphones, so who would like to start? Don't do that shy thing. Right there, great. In the middle, if we can get a mic. Do we have someone else? We can get another hair. microphone. 
Yeah, he does have good hair. Your yes. hair is great. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Thank you for coming. It's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I, I've particularly enjoyed you being candid. So in that uh, spirit, I wanted to ask, do you have any tips on how to really enjoy a shoot? And conversely, what makes them hell? That's a great question. Thank you very much. Um, what, sorry, what's your name? John. Hi, John. Um, I'm Richard. Uh, <laughs> well, it's just weird, you know. I'm sitting here with all of you, and I don't know your names, but you, I think, know mine. Um, <laughs> before I started shooting Wawa, I had the great good fortune to meet and have dinner with the late, great Mike Nichols. And I said, what's your advice? He said, good, get good catering which is so true, because the amount of shit that I've eaten on films, and it makes everybody miserable. Um, and the second thing is, actors can always act faster than they think they can. And I said, well, just explain that a bit more. And he said, there's a disease that has come into American movies where people go, well, John, I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> about answering your question. in this way that I can buy more screen time for myself and bore the shit off audiences. So he said, get them to say it at real speed, like those 1940s movies. And so when I did Wawa, I, I'd, I asked, and I had an amazing cast of people. Gabriel Byrne played my father, uh, Emily Watson, my stepmother, uh, Miranda Richardson, my mother, Nicholas Holt played me at 14, Julie Waters played my aunt. I mean, it was a gift. So. I did say to them that I had dinner with, with Mike beforehand. So when I had got a take that I was satisfied with, I would then ask the actors, and it was all technically in the right place, I'd say to the actors, you do one, just whatever you want to do, which I always think is a gift to an actor because it frees them up to not think about you know, what the directors want, they just do what they want to do. And I said, the last one that we'll do, let's do one for Mike. And I explained to them that you had to just do it at speed. And almost without exception, the best takes were the ones for Mike. Also because they were the last ones that we did. But it meant that nobody's thinking about what they're doing. They're just, they're just doing it. And that was invaluable advice. And it's something that I've always thought, uh, you know, when I've been doing scenes of thinking, you know, to, to myself, or in the absence of direction, what would Mike Nichols do? And he'd say, just get through it, because in real life, people don't, unless they've got real problems, <laughs> they don't tend to mm, break every fucking line up so that you have to, you know what I mean? So I hope that answers your question, John. And the hell? Right. The you. hell? Sorry? The hell? The worst yeah. ones? What about the, the hell? The worst advice. No, what makes them hell? What makes a scene, uh, uh, a set hell? Bad food? What, oh, bad food. <laughs> what makes a scene hell is micromanagement. I worked with... Someone? <laughs> Someone? I worked on a film with a foreign director in Prague, and he would say, Richard, you're breathing. I said, what? He said, before every take, you're going... <sighs> and I said maybe you should take the headphones off because I have to breathe <laughs> in order to say the words. He said, no, no, every time I'm hearing it on here, you're going, 
<laughs> so that drove me nuts. <laughs> so I thought, well, Frank Sinatra is the only person that you never hear take in a breath. So every time I would say any line of dialogue, I would do that so that you didn't hear any breath going in. And as a result, I am almost lifeless to corpse-like dimensions <laughs> in the film. <laughs> Micromanagement, yeah. Just leave the actor to kind of get on with it and not nitpick on every single thing that they do because I think it's, you know, it's not unlike dealing with dogs or children, actors, that you know, if, you, if you encourage them and praise them, they will do almost anything for you. <laughs> Seriously, in the best possible way. You know, we're there to do it. Okay. Uh, oh, we've got a couple here. If we could just get a microphone to someone, that'd be great. Anyone else over this side? We can get a microphone. Hi, Will. Hello. Um, yeah, I was really interested to hear you talk about Robert Altman. Um, I did know somebody else who knew him and told me a few stories, but uh, um, I understand, for example, that McCabe and Mrs. Miller was the film where he invented the... Every, you can hear everybody like you can in real life, but I'm not sure if that's true, but... Uh, you did the M.A.S.H. Uh, yeah, it was M.A.S.H. M.A.S.H. was after McCabe, I think. I can't remember. No, it was, it was first. Oh, Sorry, okay. I'm a geek. <laughs> yeah, it was first. Uh, just wondering, all these great people you're talking about, and you might want not want to do it since you're actually being recorded, uh, who was your, you know, as a moviegoer, who is your favorite director and possibly favorite film, if you can think along those lines at all? Um, favorite director is Robert Altman, hands down, because he was the, yeah. He, he, I felt that he, his understanding of actors and his appreciation for what they did was enormous. But having said that, uh, if you asked Bob for direction, he wouldn't give you any. He said, I don't know. He said, you're the actor, you do it. <laughs> he said, I'll just cut anything that makes you look like an asshole. <laughs> so from that point of view, he was totally unprescripted. But the best writer I've worked with is hands down Bruce Robinson. So the discipline of having to do every single thing that he has written, that in itself is a great, there's a discipline on the, on the one side, but then the, the freedom to, you know, to expand on the characters that, that he gave me in both those films was an incredible experience as well. So it sounds like they're contradictory, but um, he's essentially a writer. And, and being a writer myself, I honor that, that I know how hard it is to make stuff that sounds like people are just having a conversation um, that then has an ongoing effect to you know, form a narrative. So... Yes, Altman and him. And the, the actor that I have really had the, the best working experience with has been Melissa McCarthy on this, um, on this film. And I think it, it shows in the relationship that, that, that we have. It was just unlike anything that I've had before. So I know how lucky I am. Favorite film? Favorite film? Oh, favorite film. Oh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, a favorite to, to, yeah, I worked on a film with Denham Elliott and Julie Waters called Killing Dad, that if you'll appreciate this, it came out on a Wednesday at uh, the ABC in Shaftesbury Avenue, and it was on DVD, it was on video 10 days later, <laughs> and was an absolute disaster. But the joy of working with Julie Waters was absolutely amazing. So, 
again, you know, it's the experience of the friendships of the people that you work with, that maybe not the end result is, in the final scheme <laughs> of things, as an actor, that's the thing that I've, I've remembered, the, remembered the most. Not that Killing Dad was my favorite film, but um, I think that almost inevitably, because it was the first film that I had ever made, uh, with Bruce Robinson, and we formed such a lifelong friendship from that. And I, uh, I loved working with Paul and Ralph Brown, played the drug dealer, and the late great Richard Griffiths. Um, and the crew on that movie said, "This is such a unique atmosphere that's that is has been created on this. When you make more movies, and I thought, yeah, I'm never going to make another movie. Um, you will th you will realize how." unique this experience was. And I'm working with people now on Star Wars who were on that film, and they still talk about, they said, yeah, we told you you'd carry on working, <laughs> and that it was such a good experience when we did it. So I suppose because it's given me my entire screen career, and the reason that I'm sitting here talking to you all today, um, that has to be the, the film that I, you know, and it has this ongoing life that just, it's like a dog that will not be put down. Um, <laughs> You know, every year there are a new generation of kids that seem to adopt this film for whatever reason that I have no understanding of. So that would have to be it. Yep. Thank, Thank you. you for your question. And can we go up the back to a question there? We've got time for two questions. We'll go up the back there. And then, do we have anyone down the front? And the lady here. One we've lady. Got, we, so we've got, so we've, we've got a question there. We'll get three in quickly. Hi, Richard. Um, Hi, what's your name? My name's Dominic. Hi, Dominic. Um, yeah, really enjoyed today. It's been absolutely fantastic. So thank you very much oh, for coming thank in. You. Um, my question is, I know you've touched upon it a little bit already, but I was wondering if you maybe talk a little bit more about um, working on The Age of Innocence and what it was like working with Scorsese and, and Daniel Day-Lewis as well, because uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I absolutely love that film. I think it's fantastic. Thank so. you. Dominic, on the first day, the generator broke down. We were shooting in New York at a theatre for an opera scene, and... Uh, I got summons by Sir Daniel De well, Daniel De Lewis, who wasn't knighted then, into his Winnebago. And I prostrated myself and I said, oh, Daniel, I am here because you turned down Withnell and I. <laughs> and he said, arise. It's amazing. Oh, I love that. Having said which, for the next three months, he didn't speak to me. <laughs> I kid you not, because wow. his character hated my character in the story. So I went into the makeup trailer the next day, and there was Michelle uh, Pfeiffer, Winona Ryder, Miriam Margulies, and Daniel. And I said good morning to everybody. Apart from him, everybody else said good morning back. And he didn't speak to me. And I said to Michelle Pfeiffer, I said, have I done something? What the fuck? She said, method. <laughs> okay. And then on my last day with the late Alec McCowan, we finished, I think, a week before the main unit did. Um, Scorsese, Martin Scorsese said, oh, he took great English actors, blah, blah, blah. You know, gave us an applause off on our last take. And Daniel broke out of you know, Archer, his character, and came over and embraced me. And I was like, Jesus. Because I used to walk, I used to avoid walking past him because it's very unnerving if you've had three hours while the generator broke down speaking on the first day of exchanging people that we knew in common and, you know, finding great common ground to then meet the person the next day and literally be blanked was very disconcerting, especially if you're paranoid like I am. <laughs> so, so when he suddenly said, oh, Richard, it's been such a pleasure and I've loved working with you, I was like, Jesus Christ. 
Anyway, but thank you for reminding me of that, Dominique. <laughs> and we're going to cross to this gentleman here. Hello. Yes, hi, Will. Um, over your 30 year career of acting. Yes, my son. Yes. <laughs> You've been there before the internet, the birth of the internet, and now the teething days of the internet. Have you found it easier to gain parts? and that you've been cast for because of the internet now, because it's so easy to do self-tapes and because of websites such as Mandy and da 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 which we will go on. Do you find that easier now? And do you find it also, do you think it would be harder now for actors such as myself and other people maybe in the room to gain parts now because the internet is so vast and everything is so quick now? Okay, um, it's a great question. The What I love about... Uh, self-taping is that you have the opportunity to re-take yourself. If, if, if you don't like what you've done, you can, you know, as painful as I find it to do, you can, you can reshoot until you feel that you're happy with the scene that you're sending off. What I find unnerving is that you don't go into a room and meet anybody. But the advantage of that is that if your nervous disposition, of which I am, I think you might be the same, when you go into a room and you freeze or think, oh my God, or you see somebody who you think is obviously right for the part, or you're sitting in a room with six other people who look the same as you and are more famous than you and think, well, what the fuck am I doing here in the first place? Um, being able to send it off is, I think it gives you some vestige of control about what you're doing. But at the same time, there is the anonymity of just self-taping and then sending it off and, and having no feedback whatsoever. And that's unnerving. And I'll give you an example. I was we, my wife and I were driving to an antiques fair in the south of France, as you do. And, um, <laughs> and I got a call from Sulata, my, my agent, who said, oh, you've been offered that part that you self-taped for in the final Wolverine movie with Hugh Jackman. And I started arguing with her. And I said, no, I haven't. I haven't self-taped for this. She said, yeah, you did. So I had to pull over the motorway, and I said, Look, you know, I don't want to argue with you, Sue, but could you please just send me the, by email what I've actually sent in? Because I haven't a fucking clue what you're talking about. <laughs> so she did, and there was a scene that was, you know, sort of usual gobbledygook stuff of techno you know, that you had to do. And I looked at it, and I said, it, it didn't have the name Logan on it or what the character's name or anything about it at all. 16 pages of this stuff. And I said, I've been cast from that. She said, yeah. Do you want to do it? And I said, yes, I do. <laughs> and the same thing happened with Star Wars. I was sent a generic scene, an interrogation scene from a beef feature movie from the 1940s, a war film. Um, and I knew from the language that it was something, you know, nothing to do with Star Wars. And so I learnt the scene and self-taped it, sent it off into, you know, into the ether had no response, and then two months later got a call saying, J.J. Abrahams is sending a car to, to meet you at Pinewood Studios. Do you want to go? Yes, please. <laughs> so I think the, that is a great advantage of it. Um, and the other thing is that it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it, you still have to audition. And I realized this because when I was in my mid-30s, my wife, who's a dialect coach, was coaching Donald Sutherland on a film called Dry White Season. And... I met him, and he'd been such an ins inspiration to me because he grew up in Canada, he had a very long face, was very tall, had worked with Robert Altman, and I thought, you know, that's somebody as a kind of guide for how you could be if you were ever going to get, get into a movie. And I said, Donald, 
Donald, at what point do you stop auditioning? Because I was thinking, you know, when, what do you have to do when you don't have to go and, you know, fan dance? And he said, no, you, you think about this all wrong. He said, you have to go in thinking, I'm going to test these people out, whether I want to work with them. And I know it's a sort of trick because it's all loaded against the actor. But he said they, they want to try and find somebody that's going to be the right fit for the part. So if you go in willing and wanting to do an audition, it, that is a huge mindset advantage for you to have. And it really changed the way that I thought about auditioning and now try and enjoy it as much as it is possible. About the internet, the other thing that I found most dispiriting about it, which makes how to, can you ever forgive me, such a period movie, because people talk. Whereas if you go into a restaurant now or on the street or on a bus or a tube or whatever, everybody's, everybody's that's the silhouette of our age. They're looking down. So, and I noticed this most particularly when I was on, I did four episodes of Girls with Lena Dunham. And when I got there, I was so excited to work with all of them because I'd seen the first three series. And between every take, nobody talked. And they said to me, you ask a lot of questions. You talk a lot. And I said, well, you know, I'm here. And they said, what did people do before mobile phones? I said, we talked to each other. So that, to me, is a great loss that, that in this need to communicate with other people, there is a kind of loneliness that it seems to me that you don't communicate with the people that are literally around you. And I find it very dispiriting, and I sound like a really old fart now. <laughs> when you go into restaurants and you see families who are on their mobile phones, or people on dates who are looking at their mobile phones. And I think, who the fuck are they talking to? <laughs> they're here for each other. So I just think that maybe they're just polyamorous. So, but thank you for your question, Will. And we've got our last question from the lady down here. Hi. Hi. How are you? Um, my question is in relation to can you ever forgive? I have to introduce you. This is Karen Stokes. You're part of something called the Regiment because of my initials. And you came to the first Withnail reunion screening about 20 years ago with a group of obsessed fans. And you've flown over from Dublin today to do no. this. I'm absolutely gobsmacked and feel I should pay your airfare, but I'm not. <laughs> but please give us your question. I have the memory of an elephant. You're worth every mile, Richard. Um, my question is in relation to can you ever forgive me? So obviously, we have to wait until February, I think, for the release date in Dublin. Yeah, February 1st. But me being the stalker that I am, I've been watching every, you know, the PR trial that you've been doing in Canada, Italy, America, all the interviews in relation to can you ever forgive Longer me? Longer than the whole shoot. Yeah. But one thing that strikes me is a lot of the headlines, you know, are relaunched his career. And from the point of view of a staunch, diehard fan like me, I want to say, um, sorry, he didn't go anywhere. He hasn't, he's always been around. So my question is, how does that make you feel? You know, this kind of sense that it's relaunched your career or it's, you know, whereas as far as I'm concerned, you've always been around, you, you didn't go anywhere. So does it make you feel good or? It does make me feel good. And thank you for your question and your loyalty is absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> I do mention you to my wife every now and again. I said, yeah, if you think I'm that impossible, there's somebody in Dublin who thinks. <laughs> She said, she doesn't live with you. <laughs> um, no, what, I'm very, 
aware and grateful that you know you can you you do these movies you can play bigger parts or smaller parts but something that hits the zeitgeist or connects with people that you can't predict and so I'd always thought in my experience of working in America um, and being in movies from here that were shown in America that I was such a you know if you try and put yourself in a pigeonhole of playing cynical, effete, entitled, arrogant, whatever those things are, long-faced kind of parts, that people, certainly in America where there's a need for that almost Emma Thompson-like warmth and connection, that hasn't happened to me in my career. Um, but it's happened on this film. And I think because this character is so vulnerable and... Uh, wants to be liked in the story and is such a contrast to the curmudgeon of Lee Israel's played so brilliantly by Melissa McCarthy. It's, it's been a way in. So like when I was at the governor's honorary Oscar ball two weeks ago and every person there was, you know, every, every single face was famous. Um, Tom Hanks came up to me and he said, you're perfect in the perfect movie, we love you. And Steven Spielberg was standing right behind him. I thought, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> and then it was, you know, Lady Gaga and Clint Eastwood and all these people. It was, and then what was interesting is that the number of people that said, we saw you in Withnail and I, and we've liked you since then. And I thought, you may have liked me since then, but you haven't employed me since then. <laughs> so this has been the sort of, you know, it's... It literally has felt like that, and I know the reason I'm sitting here today is as a result of that. So if it's Renaissance, bring it on. <laughs> I'm grateful. Whatever it is, you know, and it's the other, more than anything, this, this whole experience and this sort of award season thing that I'm now, Fox Searchlight have got me channeled into doing, um, which I'm very grateful for, uh, it absolutely fits what... John Lennon said just before he was murdered that life is what happens in between making your plans. I, you, I couldn't have predicted that anything like this would have happened. And I thought, you know, at the age that I am, I, I met and interviewed for a novel that I wrote 20 years ago, the late great um, Roddy McDowell, who'd been a child actor and was in then Planet of the Apes. And he said, how do you see your old age? And I just turned 40, and I said, I haven't thought about it. And he said, think about it. He said, because from now onwards, your parts, whatever fame, recognition, money you've had, is going to be dwindling. And you can either become like 98% of actors, in his opinion, bitter and twisted, pissed off, and he said, end up like, and he said, Michael Douglas, where you're like, <laughs> raging that you're not still playing the leads. Um, this is Roddy McDowell who said that, not me. <laughs> I'm merely reporting a dead man's words. Um, <laughs> and he said, or you can go, you can be the 2% of people who go, I have been so lucky who I've worked with, where I've been, and what I've been paid, and my recognition for that is so off the chart from where you really began. He said, and you can make that conscious decision. And the older I've got, I've realized the wisdom of that because there's so much stuff that you have to deal with in this profession where you get dumped on or ignored or, uh, you know, all the stuff that happens, the humiliation of it is ongoing. 
uh, as any actor will attest to, so I'm not seeing the blues about that, it's just the nature of the profession. So to have this sort of renaissance or this sort of sudden mushrooming of interest, if you like, at my age, at this point of time, is unbelievable, I'm so grateful. But thank you for your loyalty. <laughs> and thank you for coming. Thank you so much for being here for your questions. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Richard E. Grant. Thank you so much.